Welcome to episode 18, My Sweet Gordies. I'm very excited for this week's episode because it is my first haunted home. Sound the game horns. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I think is how it goes. Anyway, what I thought was funny is that even though I specifically wanted to do a haunted home and not a hotel, well, you'll see. I am going to pause right now, though, and give a major trigger warning for this episode. Suicides are mentioned, though briefly, several times, and there's even one mention of animal cruelty. I will be giving a warning before the animal part, but with how many times suicide is mentioned, I decided to give a warning at the very beginning. If mention of suicide truly upsets you, this might not be the episode for you. Please feel free to listen to one of my other episodes instead this evening. With that being said, I'm not going to tease y'all at all this week because we have a lot of family history and haunties to get through. So let's dig on into the Lemp family mansion. Okay, we're going to first do a mini dive into the mansion itself before we discuss the family who gave it the name Lemp Mansion. So, the mansion was built in 1868 by Mr. Jacob Feikert and was purchased by William Jacob Lemp, who was Jacob's son-in-law, actually. Now, William got the house to be a residence for his family and also kind of an office space for the brewery William's family owned. This place was massive, with 33 bedrooms, and William renovated it to basically be a Victorian show place. The mantle in the main brewery office is made of Italian marble. The parlor had a hand-painted ceiling with mantles made of African mahogany wood. And the family collected art for miles. The Lemp family was adamant art collectors to the point that they weren't even able to show it all in their home. They ended up with three humongous vaults to store the extra with each measuring about 13 feet high, 25 feet deep, and 15 feet wide. Or roughly four meters high, a hair over seven and a half meters deep, and four and a half meters wide, people. On top of exquisite art, the Lemps kept exotic birds and plants in their atrium, which was located right behind the parlor. Last bit of information on the house itself, the second floor was for bedrooms for the family, and the third floor was meant as a servant's quarters, which the servants didn't have it too shabby with an observation deck and even a skylight. Then there's the caves that sit right below the home itself and under most, if not all, of the brewery. The family had two tunnels to go into the system. One led to the brewery itself, and the second led to where the family had their own, wait for it, underground swimming pool, theater, auditorium, ballroom, and even a frickin' bowling alley. This unique and eloquent home sits at 3322 Domino Place, formerly known as 3322 South 13th Street. I know this description is fairly brief, and I do apologize, but we'll get into how the mansion changed over time after and how it sits now. But for now, we are going to dive into the history of the family itself. Now, our journey begins in 1836 with a Mr. John Adam Lemp, hot off the boat from Estridge, Germany, looking to start a new life in America. And when I say new, I mean new. He left his second wife and son behind with several debts from failed ventures kind of new. Which, he did have a daughter named Jeanette with his first wife, Anna, before the wife passed away, but I couldn't find any more information on the daughter or where she ended up. The only information that came up was that her son, Charles, came to America where he and John's son, William, shared partnership of their father's brewery for a time. 
but a hair more on that later. We go to 1838, where John had just turned 40 and has settled down in St. Louis, Missouri. He originally opened up a grocery store called A. Lemp & Company, which, of course, there were other grocers in the area, but one thing he had that none of his competitors did? Beer. Well, lager beer. You see, John learned how to make lager beer with his father back in Germany and was even making and selling it back in Germany between 1832 and 1834. His beer quickly became very popular and a hot-ticket item in his store. As such, he said, screw this foolery, I'm going to start a brewery. And he did. In 1940, he left the grocery business and opened up his own brewery named Western Brewery on 112 South 2nd Street. Now, you may not know this, but St. Louis was the perfect place to brew beer due to the natural cave system just below the city. This cave was able to give the best temperature to age beer. And small but cool fun fact is that Lemp Beer won first place at the St. Louis Fair in 1858. The brewery grew and was very much successful. John passed away, though, on August 23rd of 1862. I'm sure he went peacefully, though, considering his company was literally making millions. We now hop to John's son, William. Yep, remember me briefly mentioning how John left his second wife and son in Germany? Well, it seems while he might have, quote, forgotten his wife, who remarried a successful brewer, by the way, back in Germany, never forgot his son. He was even said to have sent an associate to fetch him, though I couldn't find an exact year for this. Which, quick sad fact, William's first name was Jacob, but he had an older brother by the name of William who tragically passed away when he was four years old. After that, John and his wife dubbed Jacob as William and made his middle name Jacob. Eventually, the son did come to America to be with his father in 1848, at the age of 13, if I'm mathing right. After arriving in the country, he completed his education, which ended at St. Louis University before he got his diploma, according to one source, before becoming a foreman and manager at his father's brewery. He did end up leaving the company to become partners with another brewer, but in 1861, William enlisted in the U.S. Reserve Corps after the American Civil War began, where he rose to the title of orderly sergeant, and he also married his wife, Julia. As mentioned, William's father, John, passed away in 1862, and afterwards, in response, William returned to the brewing company and took over as owner and operator. It was around this time that William bought our beloved mansion. Shortly after, in 1864, he began to grow the brewery and expanded the buildings, quickly becoming the largest in St. Louis, covering five city blocks at the time. Even before his father's death, the company was rolling in dough. But business just kept expanding, y'all. And man, do I mean it. William definitely had an eye and mind for innovation because after expanding the buildings, he then had the company begin to brew and bottle their own beer, which according to a few sources was a rare feat at the time. And then in 1878, he put in a refrigeration machine, which was the first put into an American brewery. From there, he was like, what about refrigerated railway cars? And the people were like, hell yeah, refrigerated railway cars. Which, <laughs> which led to his father's beer being able to be distributed worldwide. After much success, William founded William J. Lemp Brewing Company from Western Brewery, with himself as president and his son, William Jr., as vice president. Things were looking pretty sweet. We are now going to start going down the line of tragedies that befell this family over time. So, 
William Sr. had had eight children with his wife, Julia, which honestly just makes my ovaries hurt. Our first tragedy happened with the birth of their first daughter in 1862. She sadly passed away the same day and was buried without a name in the family's plot. The second that happened in the same year was that his father passed away from cirrhosis. William's third blow happened when he had to choose between his father's company being partnered with his half-nephew, Charles, and the other company he partnered with for a time before his father's passing. After much stress and deliberation, William chose his father's company, but it wouldn't be until 1866 that his partner at the other company finally parted ways. Of course, mostly starting in 1864 on, most of the success and prosperity I mentioned earlier happened. One of the last major things that pushed William Sr. over the edge was the loss of his fourth son, Frederick. Frederick is said to have been William's favorite son and the one he actually helped to groom and prepare to take over the family's company when the time came. Unfortunately, this time never did come. At the age of 28, Frederick passed away due to heart failure. It's said that he had a lot of health problems and the death was a shock and burden to his father, William. William's mental state had already begun declining since the passing of his son, but the final straw was the passing of his friend, also named Frederick, on January 1st of 1904. With a heavy heart, William went to one of the bedrooms at the family mansion and completed suicide by a gunshot to the head with a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson on February 13th of 1904. After his father passed away, William J. Billy Lemp Jr. took over the company several months later in November of 1904. At this time, he turned the family mansion into the company headquarters as well. Billy was married to Lillian Hanlon five years prior to his father's passing, and they moved into a new home on 13th Street, the same street as the family's mansion. Now, Lillian was commonly nicknamed the Lavender Lady. It's said that lavender was her main color of choice all the way from her clothes down to her horse's harness. Now, during these five years of marriage, they had their only child, William III. But there's not much to say on the son. It's the father, Billy, we're going to purely cover now because he's a card. In a not good, oh my tart kind of way though. You see, at first Billy loved and enjoyed showing off his trophy wife, but after some time he got tired of not doing as he pleased when he pleased. This led to him giving his wife $1,000 in US dollars to spend each day with the ultimatum that if she didn't go out and spend the whole 1000 then she would no longer receive any money. Which you might sit there and think, 1000 I could spend that easy at the mall. Oh, but my sweet summer child, you forgot inflation. In today's money, that was a little over $28,000. And to spend that on the daily, you kind of run out of things to want or need. I mean, granted, I'd probably end up giving a majority, if not all of it, to charities just to spite my husband and come home early like, your move, you stale potato. But then I hear you say, oh wait, come home early? What was the husband doing when she was out attempting to blow all that money? So glad you asked. You see, Billy, again, tired of his beautiful wife, decided to start throwing extravagant parties, usually in the caverns below his home and the brewery. During the day, he'd work at the business, but as soon as it was quitting time, the party and debauchery began. He was even said to hire several prostitutes to entertain his guests, but it was very well known that he also enjoyed some of the fine services these ladies provided. One to the point that she ended up bearing him a son. Now, this poor boy was said to be born with Down syndrome and was cruelly nicknamed Monkey Face Boy. 
He was hidden in the attic by his father and lived his whole life there. While there's no official documentation that's been found to prove the boy's existence, according to legendsofamerica.com, a nanny and chauffeur of the mansion confirmed the poor boy's existence. I did find a few places that named the boy Zeke, but I am unsure if that is truly his name. And also, in the Ghost Hunters episode with the Lent Mansion, the person showing the crew around said how Zeke was actually Julia's son, who was William Sr.'s wife, but Zeke wasn't the name of any of their eight children. Of course, if he truly was hidden from the world and they didn't want others to know about their major air quotes, unperfect child, then either William Sr. or William Jr. could be the father. But timeline-wise, I'm placing my bets on William Billy Jr., In 1908, Lillian had had enough and demanded a divorce, which took her and her husband to court. Her allegations ranged from cruel treatment to desertion, which, as mentioned, is 100% true and good for her. In the end, she won her divorce and was even given custody of their child, William III, mentioned prior, only giving Billy visitation rights. It said the last day in court was the only time she was seen outside of her preferred color of lavender when she wore black in front of the judge. Not long after this debacle, Billy began construction on his new home near the Miramac River. Construction ended in 1914, and he moved in permanently after that. Now, even before the divorce and losing custody of his son, Billy was getting into stressful water with the beer company slowly declining. This is because in 1906, nine different breweries joined forces like the Flippin' Power Rangers and created fierce competition that slowly began taking business away from his own. Billy's second blow in 1908 was the fact that his mother passed away from cancer on April 16th. We skip a bit ahead to 1915 where Billy marries his second wife, Ellie, but not much is said about her, so we move on. So, each year, the family's earnings were becoming less and less until... (laughs) As a lot of you know, remember from high school history, Prohibition hit in the 20s and either you had to take your business underground, such as a speakeasy, or lose everything. Billy was on the lose everything side and the brewery shut down and was auctioned off to International Shoe Company for 588,000 US dollars in June of 1922. Which, with inflation, that would be just a hair short of 7,658,000 US dollars. But you see, this is actually a very low blow, despite the amount it seems to most of us. Because according to the mansion's official site, the company was once worth $7 million back then. So I'll let you do the math on how much that would actually be in today's money. But regardless, the amount of donuts I could buy with that money? (sighs) Twin Peaks? has ruined me. Jumping to another child of William Sr., before going back to Billy for his finale in our timeline, we meet Elsa. She was the youngest of William Sr.'s children, and in 1910, she married Thomas Wright. Thomas was the president of Moore Jones Brass and Metal Company. Things weren't all sunny for their marriage, and after separating in 1918, Elsa filed for divorce in February of 1919. Her main accusations in wanting the divorce was claims of mental and physical distress and damage brought on by her husband. The trial tilted in her favor and was granted the divorce. A lot of good it did, though, because our lady and potentially abusive husband made up and got rehitched in March of 1920. Later in the same month, though, Elsa took her own life in her bed by a gunshot to the head at her home at Horston's place which was the only suicide in the family that didn't happen at the mansion itself. 
According to one source, her brother, Billy, who visited the grisly scene, was quoted saying, quote, That's the limp family for ya, unquote. Which, thanks, Billy. Always a bright light in a cloudy room. Speaking of Billy again, though, losing the company was the last straw for him. His mental health began to slip and his depression and erratic behavior worsened. It all came to a head when on December 29th of 1922, he excused his secretary from his office at the family mansion before taking his life by putting a 38 caliber revolver to his heart. We now move on to the last tragedy in this family. No longer needing the family mansion as a business headquarters, Charles, Billy's half-nephew mentioned prior, renovated it back fully into a residence. He lived alone in the mansion with two servants, his Doberman and Zeke. Though the very few sources that I saw mention Zeke didn't specify if he now roamed freely or if he was still kept in the attic. I do hope he was able to go where he pleased, at least around the home. Now, Charles never married, and instead, he never actually got involved in the family business and that he actually entered the field of banking and real estate. As he got older, it was said that he developed into quite the germaphobe. He wore gloves at all times and was very insistent on washing his hands often. It was around the time of this development that Zeke had passed away. The boy was in his 30s. Now, this is where the animal cruelty comes in. To skip it, maybe jump ahead 30 seconds to be safe? Okay, on May 10th of 1949, Charles took his Doberman down to the basement of the house and shot him before going up to the second floor of the home. In a room connecting to the room Billy took his own life in prior, Charles completed suicide by shooting himself with a 38 caliber army colt. The most messed up and sad part of this for me is that the dog wasn't discovered in the basement, but instead halfway up the stairs, probably looking for his master. Which I really, really love Dobies, man. I hate animal cruelty naturally, but it hurts even more where Pitbulls and Dobermans are concerned. They're both fantastic breeds and complete derps. And I wish they didn't have such rotten stigmas surrounding them. <sighs> Last thing to mention where Charles is concerned is that according to one source, he was the only one in the family to leave a note behind and it read, quote, In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me, unquote. For just a hair of positivity, we move on to the last original member of the Lemp family, William Sr.'s last remaining child, his son, Edwin. Now, Edwin worked at his father's brewery until 1913 before retiring to his home that was overlooking the Merrimack River, much like his brother Billy. He had quite the zoo on his property, from yaks and buffalo to sheep and antelope. But he didn't just care for his own personal zoo. It was noted that he was heavily involved in various charities, most of which involved St. Louis Zoo. Edwin died of natural causes in 1970. His last wish was to have all the family's documents, artifacts, and art that had been collected over the years burned. Which just hurts my soul. But that is the end of the Lemp family line since William III passed away in 1943 of a heart attack. Whew. Okay, just let that all sink in. A lot of names, dates, and terrible events. To take a mini break, I'm going to mention a gentleman by the name of Andrew Paulson that claimed to be the last descendant of the Lent family. There was a lot of evidence that seemed damning, and the people were like, is he really? But one of the many things against him was that he was born 11 years after his supposed connection Anne-Marie Counta passed away. 
it's an interesting article, and I will link it in the show notes. Okay, with the family history taken care of, let's go into a little bit more information on the mansion itself. So, after Charles Lemp completed suicide in 1949 and Edwin moved out of the mansion, the mansion was turned into a boarding house in 1950. But over the next 10 years, the area around the home and even the home itself began to deteriorate. In the 1960s, construction on Interstate 55 ended up with destruction of one of the family's carriage houses and even the demolition to a lot of the grounds once owned by the family. It was in 1975 when the mansion was bought by a Dick Pointer, which I'm, so- <laughs> which I'm sorry, I'm actually 12. Now, Richard and his family renovated the home and saved it from an otherwise dismal fate. It was turned into a very lovely bed and breakfast and hosted a full bar and restaurant. At some point, they began offering event halls, ghost tours, and even mystery dinners. Which I've always wanted to go to one, and that is one of my goals after this whole mess in the world ends. But, okay, guys, remember when I said at the beginning of the episode how this place was gorgeous? Well, oh my lordy, was I not exaggerating. You can actually see the whole place yourself in a virtual tour they have on their website at lempmansion.com under their video gallery tab. I got so lost going through there that I got a little bit behind on notes, more than I cared to. You might have actually seen me doing this if you follow me on Instagram. I was having so much fun and posted it in my stories. I have to say, even though I would never want to live in a place so large, I would make an exception for this place. Or at least, please let me steal one of the mirrors and the couch from the front hallway. Pretty please, with cherries on top and all that jazz. I promise I'll take good care of them. (laughs) One last fun thing to let y'all know about that is in the caverns below the home and brewery. Wanna know what's down there now? A haunted house. Yes, you can venture into the caves and get a good spook while you're at it. Though, honestly, and probably surprisingly, I don't do haunted houses because I can't take sudden movement. But the thought of exploring those caves gives me chills of anticipation, which is really sad considering I'll never be able to. If you're interested in looking into this haunted house, it's called Lent Brewery Haunted House. Alright, we ghoulies, we are going to now get into the part of the episode I am sure you're most excited about. The hauntings. So, the alleged paranormal activity began when the home was turned into a boarding facility. It was said that many residents experienced phantom knocking and footsteps throughout the home, and the more this became common knowledge and spread, the harder the boarding house had finding tenants. Due to this, the condition of the house got worse and worse at a quicker rate. In 1975, as mentioned prior, the mansion was purchased and fancied back up by the Pointer family. It was said that during the renovation, it was really hard to keep construction staff due to all the odd happenings. Some examples were tools going mysteriously missing, the knocks and footsteps mentioned prior, and even the sight of supposed apparitions from time to time. After a time, the fixing up was finished, but the trouble was just beginning with these mischievous spirits. There were common reports from staff at the bar and restaurant about the same encounters mentioned with the construction staff, along with disembodied voices, unknown noises coming from seemingly nowhere, lights being turned on and off, doors locking and unlocking by themselves, the piano in the bar enjoyed playing itself, and at the bar the ghosties would lift the glasses off the surface and fling them through the air. 
Now, the bar is actually the room Charles completed suicide in, and it's said that he's the most commonly seen of the full apparitions, and he tends to be seen with his dog. Which, I mean, if you gotta run into a ghost, it's gotta add some extra points if they have a dog. Personal opinion. The bar and restaurant isn't alone, of course, and according to legendsofamerica.com, the most haunted places in the home is the main stairway, the attic where poor Zeke lived, and the area in the basement that used to host the entrances to the cave and brewery. The staff affectionately calls this place Gates to Hell. We're now going to give some specific experiences and explain the happenings in certain places for your spooky pleasure. First, we visit Billy Lynn's bathroom, where Richard Pointer is currently painting during the renovation. Good old Richie had a bit of a spook, and according to Needlerama.com, he was quoted saying, quote, I was painting the bathroom by myself. There was no one else in the house. And I felt like someone was behind me, watching me. I mean, it was a terrible feeling, the most burning sensation you could have. I get goosebumps just now thinking about it. I turned around and nothing was there. I started working again and got the same feeling, so without looking behind me, I cleaned my paintbrushes and got the hell out of there. Unquote. Richard is not alone in his spooky times in this bathroom. It's said that many women have admitted to seeing a man peeking at them over the stall's wall in the shower. One such occurrence happened to a woman who promptly accused two men at the bar and told them how she hopes they got an eyeful. Which, of course, both men heavily denied being a peeping Tom. Luckily, the bartender verified that neither man ever left the bar. It's widely believed that the ghost that haunts this bathroom is the late William Jr., also known as Billy. Now, Richard is not the only one with a painting scare as well, because according to the same site, a painter hired to restore the lovely ceilings in the parlor was quoted saying, quote, I was on the scaffolding, lying on my back and painting the ceiling in the dining room, when I got the feeling that someone was staring at me. I felt as though they were in the hallway just outside the room, but I couldn't see anything through the frosted glass doors. I went on working, and about an hour later, the feelings returned. It was weird. I felt like I had to get out of there right then, unquote. It said the poor man left without cleaning up anything, even his brushes, and even didn't bother to lock the door. Which he explained that the place was basically nuts and they must have a ghost or something. Another experience from the family renovating the mansion comes from Richard's son, also named Dick. But since I'm not a huge fan of that name, we're going to call him Little D. Now, Little D was alone in the mansion one night with his doberman named Shadow when he suddenly heard a loud bang on his door that sounded like someone had kicked it really hard. He instantly searched the home, but no one was found. Which I'm like, did you really look everywhere? Because this place is huge. Though I am wondering if he was sleeping in William Sr.'s room because apparently it's common for guests to experience the sound of someone running up the stairs only to end with someone or something loudly kicking the door. Oh, and real quick, another pointless search that happened with our Little D occurred when he and an employee of the restaurant were closing shop. They both distinctively heard the piano play, Two Keys, and both did a top-to-bottom search for the culprit to no avail. The former atrium, which is now one of the dining rooms, has common occurrences of phantom animals, such as one woman interviewed on Ghost Hunters that mentioned how she was dining one day and distinctively felt a cat go between her legs, but nothing was there. 
There's also claims of chairs shifting by themselves and even being impossible to move with no noticeable reason. In the original family's dining room, one employee had an experience that ended up setting her packing and looking for other employment. According to good old needlerama.com, she was quoted saying, quote, Early one morning, I was going through the house, making sure everything was as it should be as the restaurant opened, when I noticed a dark-haired man seated at a table that was originally the Lemp family dining room. He was facing away from me, so all I could see was the outline of his shoulders and head. I was surprised to see someone in the restaurant so early, but I asked him if he wanted a cup of coffee. He did not answer. When I looked away for a moment to flip the light on, I turned around and he had vanished. Unquote. Jumping down to the basement, the main story I found was also from the Ghost Hunter episode where the woman showing them around mentioned how a server went down to retrieve something from the wine cellar and ended up locked in the room. He claimed the door was closed behind him and couldn't get out. This is also the floor of the kitchen where it's common to experience touching, filling someone's eyes on you, and a general feel of unease. Our last and probably saddest haunting comes from the attic. It's said that Billy's illegitimate son now haunts the floor and at times people have seen his face looking down at them from one of the windows. It's said that guests and ghost hunters alike tend to leave toys for him only to later find that they had moved in the night. I just hope that he has more fun and freedom in death where he didn't really in life. Much like our poor boy from Glom's Castle. I think they would be friends. Now, to tie up this creepy but beautiful home, some other experiences that have happened to employees, members of the family, and even guests include candles being lit on their own, drawers opening and closing, the sound of horse hooves clopping on the ground with no large beast in sight, feeling a great unease, shadows, glasses shifting, which must be a lot nicer to deal with than them being flung. I don't know why I'm so caught up on that. <clears throat> Either way, and various items disappearing only to reappear in another location. It's said the family has dealt with quite a bit of notices from employees wanting to leave due to all the happenings and part of me can't blame them. Even though I think it would be really cool to work in such a place, you never really know until you're put into that situation. But just remember, if you think you can brave this lovely home, you are able to stay the night. It's a little bit pricey, but between the atmosphere and the history alone, it seems worth it for a treat. Not to mention, you might get your own little experience at Lemp Mansion. Alright, it is time for the pop culture section of our lovely episode, and there isn't much to tell, but here we go. Okay, in books, there's a few on the family itself, and even books that include tales of the hauntings and happenings around the mansion such as The History and Haunting of Limp Mansion by Rebecca F. Pittman, Limp, The Haunting Mystery by Stephen P. Walker, and Ghosts of St. Louis, The Limp Mansion and Other Eerie Tales by Brian W. Alaspa. In shows, the mansion has been covered in a few ghost hunting shows, such as Ghost Adventures or what used to be my all-time favorite, Ghost Hunters, run by the TAPS team. I had a lot of fun re-watching this episode before finishing my notes. Now, I didn't have any real luck in movies, but in games, I ended up finding out in my research that the Lemp Mansion gift shop actually sells a board game based on the mansion. Honestly, I'm not a big board game player, probably from all the years of being forced to play with my older sister, <laughs> but I would totally give this one a shot. It's simply called the Haunted Lemp Mansion Game, and at the time of this episode, it's available on their site for $45 U.S. dollars. 
Okay, I'm excited for this week's movie recommendation of the week. It's a movie I commonly recommend when someone wants a found footage or haunted house film that isn't really known. This week, I recommend the movie Paranormal Entity from 2009. The movie is about a murderer blamed for killing his sister, but he claims that demons were behind her death. Footage is then found and shown of what truly happened to this boy's sister. And that's basically all you need to know before going in. But with this movie, I'm going to introduce something that I feel far more people need to know about. It's a site called DoesTheDogDie.com. And on the site, you can search almost any movie and get a solid yes or no on certain things happen in the movie in question. When I first heard of the site, it had only a few things like animal death and a few basic items. But now it has everything from shower scene to bodily fluids. It's a great site to check out if you're personally triggered by certain scenes and wish to avoid them or movies that contain them. I hope this helps some of you out and I'll be sure to link it in the show notes. Otherwise, if you give this movie a shot, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, that's it for this week, my wonderful listener. This week, I am going to do something a little bit different. Instead of promoting my social or asking for reviews, I'm going to link a master list of helplines from pleaselive.org and a master international list someone posted on tumblr.com. And also, if you don't feel comfortable talking, I did include a link to numbers you can actually text instead. I take mental health and suicide very, very seriously, and I want you to do your best in taking care of yourself. You are loved and irreplaceable on this planet and deserve so much more than to take yourself out of it. You deserve love, happiness, warmth, and understanding. I am so, so sorry if you don't have the support or help that you need, but know that I am there in spirit and I'm just hoping you can stay strong. Just remember, you haven't had the best day of your life yet and you need to stay and experience it. With all my love, be safe out there, and I hope you have a spooky night.